0: You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin.
1: Gracie Kim is a New York Times best-selling author of the Gifted Clan series. In 2012, she was interviewed for Talking Taiwan about her cooking show called Gracie in the Kitchen. We've invited her back to give us an update on what she's up to these days. She's been a New Zealand diplomat, once run a business that's turned children's drawings into cuddly toys and given a TED Talk in 2018 that still resonates today. She spoke with me about her Korean roots, how she decided to become a writer, and what it was like when her book, The Last Fallen Star, hit the New York Times bestseller list. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by Natoa, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. Natoa was founded in 1988 and its mission is 1. to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity 2. to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality 3. to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs 4. to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan 5 to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about Nadwa, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the
0: podcast, Gracie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, it's so much fun because we came across one of your episodes that was done probably about 10 years ago now. And you were Mm. talking about Gracie in the kitchen when you're still in Taiwan. So just curious to know, like, let's just start off with that. What happened with this cooking show, Gracie in the kitchen?
0: Yeah, well, okay, first of all, My goodness, has it actually been that long? That is absolutely wild, (laughs) right? (laughs) What is time, Uh, and what happened to it? My goodness, you know, I have to be honest. It feels like it was a lifetime ago, and it's. I think part of that is because so much just happened since my amazing time living in Taiwan. So, I'm really digging into the recesses of my brain. I remember the whole experience of of building and creating Gracie in the kitchen as this really joyful adventure because you know part of it was was food but part of it was discovery of of Taiwan and and living there I felt so alive I often think of I spent 2 years in Taiwan in Taipei specifically and I remember it so fondly. Like it really was some of the best years of my life. And so it's all embroiled in that experience for me. Gracie the Kitchen was so much fun. I think ultimately what happened was we ended up being broadcast on the Food Channel and Taste May. We got, you know, like a million viewers in the first year. It was awesome. We filmed two seasons and then I moved to Beijing to work at the New Zealand embassy over there with my old diplomatic job. And so I just got busy, I think, and it became this beautiful thing that was a way to remember my life in Taipei. So yeah, that's really what happened.
1: So is that what brought you to Taiwan in the first place, your work as a diplomat?
0: Yeah, that's right. So the New Zealand government sent me to Taipei for two years to study at the National University of Taipei at Taida. And so I spent two years as a professional student learning the language and like i said it was so much fun i had such a great time so that's that's how i ended up there in the first place
1: it's great what do you miss the most about taiwan then oh i miss everything you know i mean i could talk about obviously the amazing
0: markets the night markets and you know the food obviously the nature i remember thinking coming from new zealand where nature is such a huge part of how we live here i really appreciated this idea that you could be in the city this bustling city full of people and motorbikes and cars and everything and then you could just take a short drive and get to the mountains or the beach and the rivers and I love that so much but I have to say most of all it was the people I just and you know I have it's it's funny because it's not even like my amazing friends that I made there who I obviously miss dearly but it was little interactions like the cab drivers I love just talking to taxi drivers because they were so lovely. And I remember learning, like practicing a lot of my language with cab drivers and just shopkeepers and everybody always being so generous with their time and interested and curious about the world and and you and other people and and also their love for animals, I have to say. That was another thing. So many people I met in Taipei loved animals the way that I did. So I honestly, I miss everything. (laughs) Have
1: you been back since? Have have you visited? Yeah, I visited
0: once or twice, I think, while I was in Beijing. But since coming back to New Zealand, I just haven't had the chance. And then, of course, you know, the last few years with COVID and what have you, and also starting a family, having a small child, it's become impossible to go anywhere, really. But
1: I'd love to go (laughs) back. I'd love to. Right. And now you're a New York Times bestselling author of YA books, young adult books, and along the way, I see that you also did a TED Talk in 2018. And the things that you touched upon in your talk are really still relevant today. And I, and I think that a lot of Asians would really resonate with what you said in that talk. How does that make you feel? Given the environment, you know what I'm referring to, unfortunately, with the pandemic, there's been a rise in Asian hate crime. And it's really a global thing that's touched a lot of people. I wish I could
0: say that my talk was suspended in time and it was something I went through and now is no longer. But like you rightly pointed out, perhaps it's even more relevant now than it ever has been. I feel like these things go in waves, you know, and what I'm referring to, I guess, is identity and belonging and the push and pull of societies and cultures accepting, then pushing away. And I don't know, it's... I've I've thought about this so much in the last few years. And what is it? Is it just innate human nature that we push away and we put blame on others when things get too difficult because that's the easiest low-hanging fruit of dealing with an issue? Or is it more than that? I mean, I tend to prefer to think it's not innate human nature because that's so sad. (laughs) But also, I don't know, I guess I'm a practical person. I'm a doer. And whenever these things arise, I think, yes, we have to accept and acknowledge these things that are happening. But ultimately, on the day-to-day, we focus, we can only focus on our individual actions and the individual ways that we digest the information, you know. So, yes, terrible things are happening, but I guess like in my TED Talk where I bring it back to what I can do in that position to seek belonging in myself. I feel like that's my daily goal. It's the only thing that can keep me keep me going is to focus on the small changes and the small actions that we can take each day to love each other and have compassion for each other, even the people we don't really want to care about. I think that's really important because we're all on this journey together,
1: yeah. Yeah. And at that time, you mentioned that you had started writing under your pen name, Goldheart. So are there some books that are existing still written under that pen name, Goldheart?
0: No. So Goldheart was what I, when I first started writing, I thought Mm -hmm. I will publish under this name, but actually I ended up not selling any books under that name. And it was only when I... Perhaps because I embraced my true self, that my writing possibly felt more authentic, but it was at that point that I found representation and then sold a the book.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting because I did want to ask if once you came to this way of embracing your given last name, did that affect how you wrote or the things that you wrote about? Oh, 100%. So the first book that I had written, well,
0: it wasn't a book, it was a manuscript that I wrote. And this mm-hmm. was when I was working under the Gold hat last name, was very much what I thought I should be writing, if that makes sense. Like my characters, I'm pretty sure my main character was of part Korean heritage but I only it was almost like you could tell from my character that I wasn't fully letting myself be on the page you know I was like testing the water and even the the themes that I was writing about or just what was happening on the page was very much what I thought people would want to read as opposed to what I needed to write and then when I embraced Kim this flood of creativity came out of me because I let myself embrace all the parts of me that made me different. And I think up until that moment, I was trying to close the gates on what made me different because I thought in order to sell a book, I had to conform because that's all I saw being published, right? Which I think is a really logical deduction to make. And then when I gave myself the permission to say, actually, no, if I want to put Korean words into the book, I am going to because for my main character who speaks Korean and English in her home environment, that is normal, you know, and I have to do justice to my character or thinking, well, you know, what kind of relationship does she have with her family and her parents and her community or the types of cultural elements that I don't necessarily normally see in the books that I read? can I be unapologetic about that? And yeah, when I did, not only was it so fun and my words flowed a lot more because they felt natural, but, but then I found representation. So it goes to show, sometimes you have to push yourself out of your comfort zone. Um, and that is the thing that brings you bounty.
1: Yeah. That's wonderful. And that's such a great brand to be aligned with. Yes. presents. Oh, but actually going back, like from your TED talk, I had the impression that you had published something under Goldheart because you told the story about how your dad was talking to his friend about you getting some literary award or being nominated for one under that name. Yeah, that's right. So that was that first manuscript i had written. So it wasn't published, but
0: I had entered a, like a competition, I guess, to have people look at the manuscript. And so yeah. I had, I, I didn't win the award, but I was shortlisted for the award. Um, okay. And that, yeah, that's what my dad had been talking about.
1: I'm also curious to know, because in that TED Talk, you talked a lot about your identity and being Korean. And you also mentioned that Korea has actually been occupied by Japan. So I'm wondering, do you have any elders or grandparents or relatives that you know that lived through the experience of that time in Korea? Yeah, I don't have many firsthand stories that were passed down
0: because... Every time I asked my nana, who did live through that period, she just didn't like talking about it. I think it was one of those things that were so difficult that, or well, just so complicated that it was too hard to describe in words. But actually it was my dad, who was but a child, I guess, but remembers that period as well, telling me about that time. And actually his dad, so my, gr- wait, hang on a second, that's my, gr- Yeah, so my granddad. My granddad and his brother, they both, during the occupation, were taken to Japan to work. But one came back, which is the granddad that is my ancestor, and then his brother stayed in Japan. And so that whole branch of the family are now in Osaka and have been there. They don't speak any Korean, and all their names are Japanese. And it's actually really interesting because we touch base with them quite a lot. I'm quite close to them and we don't have a common language <laughs> because they speak Japanese and we speak you know Korean and English and some of the younger population do speak conversational English so we do communicate that way but I find often when I when I catch up with that side of the family how interesting it is that we look really different too so it's quite it's just really fascinating to me to know that there's this you know this branch of the family that I guess, put down their roots in Japan. But I I guess we don't really know a lot about what happened at the time. I'm so curious. I wish I could go back in time and just discover a bit more about our family history. But, uh, yeah, I don't really know.
1: Yeah, I'm curious about that because, as you probably know, Taiwan was occupied by Japan for 50 years. Of course. Um, Do you have any sense of what you would say the general sentiments of Koreans are – towards Japan? I don't think I can speak
0: on behalf of Koreans in Korea, because I feel like I'm so far removed from that. But I can tell from my parents that it's a very complex issue, because my dad often speaks very fondly of the things that we gained from that time, while also acknowledging the pain and the You know, just the blood and tears that were shed through that time as well. But actually, one of the more lighthearted examples that my dad tells me is that when his dad returned to, to Korea, so my dad grew up in a very, very small fishing village in the south of South Korea, no electricity till my dad was eight and he had to walk eight kilometers over a mountain to go to school. And he said, basically, he never went to school oh, because wow. it was too far away. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so you know, a very different time. And it wasn't all like that for everybody at that time. But because they lived in such a small, tiny village. And the story is that at the time at school, there was this form, like an enrollment form. But you had to circle the things that your family had. Like it was basically a way to gauge the family's like wealth, I guess, or their place in society. But honestly, down to on the form, it asked if you had a fridge or if your family had a vehicle or if your family had a bathroom. Like in your house, do you have a bathroom? Okay. So you, the completely different times, first of all, the fact that you had to ask questions like that, that some people may not have you know, a bathroom in your house, but also fascinating that you had to divulge this information to your school. But my dad tells the story of saying he was, you know, his family was extremely poor. You know, they had no food to feed their mouths, let alone anything else. But because of this idea of bathtubs, that his dad had acquired from his time in Japan, they had a bathtub in their house. And that was like his shining glory in school. Like everyone knew that he was the kid in the neighborhood that had the bathtub in the house. (laughs) And that to him was like, (laughs) you know, the one point of pride he had. So I found that really interesting. You know, there's obviously in that time so much, so much pain happened but then on the flip side there's these small moments of of humor that come up for the younger generation too
1: yeah it's always been interesting to me to compare those periods of time for japan and korea so always curious about that so tell me about your current trilogy the gifted clans trilogy
0: yeah so this is the so the first book in that trilogy the last fallen star is what resulted from my having embraced my last name and really wanting to put our stories out there, but not just for other Korean kids or Asian kids who could see themselves represented on the page, although that is a huge part of why I did it and why I continue to write um, these stories, but also for everybody else, you know because this idea that certain stories are only for certain people, I think that's really daft because you know, the the whole point of stories is that you can walk in someone else's shoes and discover whole new worlds. So The Last Fallen Star is a result of that. It is basically, in my head, Percy Jackson, so Rick Ryden's famous Percy Jackson, but with Korean mythology instead of Greek. I always loved everything to do with witches. I just thought witchcraft and, and magic and spells and things like that. I just, Found them so fascinating growing up and even as an adult. So I wanted to mix that with my love for, yeah, with Korean mythology and and bringing our own folk tales and and cultures to life in a modern setting. Because I think that's the thing is that these old stories often passed down through oral tradition. They, you know, change with the storyteller right? Like these stories haven't stayed exactly the same for thousands of years. Every person who tells it adds to the canon and develops them and adds texture. And so that's kind of what I wanted to do was add a diaspora texture to it and set it in today's modern world. So the story is essentially about, well, the whole trilogy is about a girl called Riley O and at the start of the story she's 12 years old and all she wants is to become a healing witch just like her sister and her parents except she was adopted and so that healing magic doesn't flow in her blood and then one day she and her sister find out about the spell in which the sister who is gifted can share half of her magic with Riley and it seems like the perfect plan except the spell is highly forbidden and very dangerous but it does not stop them they cast it anyway and everything goes terribly wrong as is want to do in any good story and when her sister's life ends up hanging in the balance the main character Riley has to go on the search for the last fallen star whatever or wherever it may be or risk losing her sister forever so that's the that's the premise of the first book and the second and third book just take her further on that journey and ultimately it's a story about belonging you know it's a story about trying to find our place in the world, which is something I guess I very much sought when I was a child also.
1: Right. And I'd like to ask you about your writing process. Since you set out to write a trilogy, is everything planned out in advance? Do you know what each of the three books is going to be about? How much planning in advance is done? That's so interesting, huh?
0: Because some writers, pride themselves on writing by the seat of their pants, i.e. no plan, no outline. They just write and they discover. Oh, that's what it's called, discovery writers. Whereas people like me, I love to plan because I find if I don't have a structure, at least even just a broad structure, I sit at my laptop and just look at that blinking cursor and I have no idea what I'm doing. I also just love to-do lists and you know, plans in general. So I think that's just the type of person I am. But interestingly, at the, at the beginning, I did hope for the book to be a three book series. And while I didn't know all the plot points or anything like that for the three books, I did have an idea of the general point of the three books, like what made each book distinct. And it goes back to, I'm actually preparing this workshop for teenagers on how to write a novel from idea to pitch to outline. And one of the things I talk about is that in every story, there's an external story and an internal story, right? Every single story out there every good story should have an external and, and internal. And the external is the plot, like what happens. And you know, she goes here and this happens and then she decides this and then she goes to that house. And then the internal plot is how the character reacts, basically. Like what is it that they feel and how does that then impact the character's next actions? It's what we call the character arc or character development. And so I think I had that for each of the three books, even though I didn't really know what plot points would be in every book.
1: Yeah. Okay. I mean that makes sense because then you know what the character's development is going to be or their journey or you know how they're going to evolve. That's exactly right. And
0: I think I think as a writer, I I find it really helpful to work that way because if you know exactly like you said what the development of the character's journey is, then you know what plot points to throw in their way as obstacles and lifelines for them to go on a fun journey to discover that.
1: Looking back on your childhood, do you think it's surprising that you've become an author? Ah, goodness. Such an interesting question. I
0: have no idea because I don't remember what I... Wanted to be when you grew up? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, interestingly, I wanted to be everything when I grew up. I I remember (laughs) I created a list when I was pretty young of all the things I wanted to be. And it was a list of things I wanted to be. And in fact, I really didn't know how to answer that question when adults asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because I was like, well, I talk about this in school for this. I'm like, I really don't like that question because how do you know what you don't know? You know, it's like saying, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? But not having been given all the flavours to try first. Like how am I supposed to know? I mean, I like the look of that one with jellies in it, but how would I know if I haven't tried it? So I don't know. I, I'd like to think that kid me be pleasantly happy with where I've ended up because I think I've tried a lot of random things. And I to me it's like trying all those flavors of that ice cream, you know, parlor. And I think where I've ended up right now is probably where I started, I think. I almost feel like I've done a three sixty because I think before I gained confidence to try new things and push myself and do things I wouldn't normally have done, at my core, I was a very shy, introverted, quiet person who loved books. I think that was at my core who I began life as. You know, my books were my safe place and it was the place I could discover whole new worlds and try on different outfits of life and decide well actually not just these are the adventures I want to go on but oh I really like how this character was brave and I really like how that other character was curious and I took from that I was like well I want to I want to be like that and I built a mosaic of myself that I wanted to become because I think we're, we're fluid that way you know you are born a certain way but we become whoever we want to be and I think books really helped me discover that. And so, yeah, I think little me probably would be quite happy that I've come back to where I started.
1: And now for a short break. Hello, listeners. I'm excited to share that we have a donor who has offered Talking Taiwan a matching donation of $5,000. That means when we raise $5,000, it will be automatically doubled to $10,000. Starting today, Monday, January 9th, any donations made to Talking Taiwan will be doubled up to $5,000. So this is the time for you to make a contribution to Talking Taiwan and help us raise $10,000. You can make a contribution to Talking Taiwan on GoFundMe.com, Patreon.com forward slash TalkingTaiwan or PayPal and Zelle using our email address TalkingTaiwanPodcast at gmail.com. Or if you're old school, just send us a check to our mailing address, which you'll find on our website at talkingtaiwan.com forward slash support. All of our donors will get exclusive first listening access to my interviews. With Robert Cao, founder of UMC, who in August of 2022 pledged to donate 100 million US dollars to help Taiwan defend itself. Chin Qi Yang, a multidisciplinary artist who has been inducted into the New York Foundation for the Arts Hall of Fame. And Michelle Ho, an attorney, activist, and author of Reading with Patrick which is a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Goddard Riverside Stefan Russo Book Prize for Social Justice. We'd like to thank our first donor of the year, the Greater New York Region Overseas Taiwanese Pen Club, and all of our supporters. Now, back to the episode. How did you even get on this path to being a writer or to even start writing your first book? Because you, you've already had a number of careers. You're a diplomat. You're doing this cooking show. Quite a few things. How did you take that first step to writing a book, or even think of that? It was not an overnight decision. I remember during
0: my last year in Beijing. So I was in Beijing for three years after my time in Taipei. And I knew that my role at the embassy was my my assignment was finishing and I was due to come back to New Zealand. And I felt like it was a natural opportunity to assess where I was in my life and my career and what I wanted in my next chapter. Because I was nearing my 30s at the time and I thought, okay, do I continue this path? That's awesome, international lifestyle, or do I want something different? And I think it's so important always to look ahead and to make sure what you're currently doing is, is aligned with where you want to be headed. And at the time, I thought, I love this lifestyle, but actually where I see myself in 10 years is with a family. And I thought, if I want to have a family, then is this lifestyle the best lifestyle for that? And I thought it could be, but actually I think I would prefer it not to be. I wanted to be more stable and settled. And I thought of the sacrifice that is on my partner and my children, this is in the future, because I didn't have anyone at the time, to (laughs) expect to pack up their lives and move with me to a different country every few years, which is what was required of me in a career of diplomacy. So part of it was genuinely an active decision I made craft the type of life I wanted because and it's so hard you know I feel like in life so much of our generation we're told we can have everything and I think that can be really harmful because we can't actually have everything we can have choice to decide what we want but the idea that we can have whatever we want I think is not necessarily accurate or else you'll I don't know, burn out, you know. So for me, I wanted a career that was more stable, but that also I could do on my terms, you know, control my own hours and my own scheduling and things like that. And at the same time as thinking about it from a practical perspective, I was really thinking about what made my heart sing in terms of creative endeavors. And I really, like I said, I I went back to this place where I loved reading and I loved books. And it was only then, you know, nearing my 30s that I realized how much of all the content I had consumed voraciously as a child did not have representation of people like me. And so then I had this at the same time as having this, you know, practical desire to find a career that suited my future life. I also had this burning desire to be part of the change to say, okay, well, if representation did not exist when I was a kid, then let's stop sitting here and whining about the fact that i was not represented on the page and do something about it and i thought well i love books maybe i can try writing you know maybe i'll be terrible at it but that's okay if i find out i'm terrible then so be it but if i don't give it a go how will i know so when when i moved back to new zealand it was in 2017 and i remember thinking I had a little bit of leave from from my di- diplomacy job because they give you a bit of leave once you come home from assignment. And I thought, okay, this is the time. I'm going to do everything I can to learn how to write a book. <laughs> so I enrolled this in like you. every online course I could find, any book about writing a novel. I read lots of books. I, I watched a lot of shows and I tried to figure out the formula And so that's how I got started. And, you know, I was still working in my diplomatic job and it was over a period of, yeah, maybe a year or so in which I was working and writing at the same time. I'd get up in the morning at five to do a bit of writing before going to work and then I'd try to write in the evenings. And then... When it just became too much, I shifted. so I negotiated down to four days a week at work so that I could do a bit more writing on Fridays. And then that transitioned to three days at work and then more writing, and then eventually I you know took a long absence of leave, which also timed with the birth of my child. So then I had you know, maternity leave as well, and then I really just went head deep into writing.
1: Oh, that's great. Lucky that you were able to do it that way. Any authors or writers that have influenced you in particular? Oh, so many. <laughs> I think
0: so many writers leave a certain mark on you. Sure. And it's like that tapestry of all of them that effect uh, change on you. But I would say when I was younger, there were a few writers, local New Zealand writers, who I adored, like Elizabeth Knox and Cheryl Jordan. I adored their stuff. And then later on, Philip Pullman and his Dark Materials, when I was a kid, that got me into fantasy for the first time, just like seeing magic on the page. I loved that. And then more recently, as I started writing, Zoraida Cordova, who wrote a book called Labyrinth Lost. It's also a trilogy about witches, which, again, as I said, I love, but Latinx witches. and I just love that so much, and that inspired me a lot to write The Last Fallen Star 2. So I would say her... And then since then, so many writers who are taking parts of themselves, underrepresented parts of themselves, and putting them on the page. And there's just such a wonderful explosion of us right now doing what we do. And I just love and admire all of them. And we could just do so much more.
1: That's great. Have a writing routine? What is your writing routine? I don't have one.
0: I wish I had one. That would make things so much easier. But I find (laughs) (laughs) – I find – I can't do basically changes my constant. I can't do the same thing for too long before I get bored. Although it really does depend what I'm working on, because if I'm on deadline and I'm currently, you know, partway through a draft. I go into like weird tunnel mode, and then I have to keep things very constant. I just want you know nothing out of the ordinary. Just in in the morning, out in the afternoon, either whether I'm working at the local library if I can, or whether I'm home at my desk or at my couch or wherever it is, I just need to do the same thing over and over, rinse and repeat. But then when I'm doing more promo stuff, social media stuff, or brainstorming, you know, then I'm like. I don't know, on the bed or on the ground with huge A3 pieces of paper while my daughter's crayoning on the side and I'm writing flowcharts trying to get my thoughts in order. It's just all over the place. Sometimes I'm in the shower and I have big ideas and I have to jump out covered in suds trying to write a note to myself so I don't forget. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I have heard that a lot of ideas come in the shower, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, the other
0: thing I've realized since doing this is that so much of writing happens when you're not writing. And I really didn't know that, like, because I'm a doer. So I I just want to sit and get it done. You know, I just want output. And it's been a really frustrating but eye-opening journey to realize that sometimes you can't. You know, you have all the best intentions, but so much of the writing process is is done before you sit at that computer or that piece of paper to get those words out it's all the piecing together sometimes I go to sleep thinking about a specific plot problem and when I wake up I have you know maybe not the perfect answer but a, a partial way to a solution so your subconscious is doing a lot of work while you're sleeping too so sleep is also really important and then sometimes just disengaging, like I was hanging out with my little kid the other day and she said something and I was like, oh, that could actually help solve this thing <laughs> that I'm thinking about. So yes, no routine.
1: That's great, thanks for sharing that. So um, I also wanted to know what was it like the first time you hit the New York Times bestseller list? I mean, do you remember that moment, like when you got the news, what was it like?
0: Okay, honestly, it was really recent, so I absolutely remember. I was it was in June, the beginning of June, and
1: I congratulations.
0: Thank you, thank you. I didn't believe it is how I felt because the book. So the, it was the last fallen star that hit the list, and the the book had come out a year ago. So it's not like I was expecting it, or it was on you know a trajectory to do so. But it just happened. And I, yeah, I, I honestly, I still don't quite believe it happened. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure what it did. <laughs> I feel eternally grateful because I think it's amazing booksellers out there and amazing readers who share word of mouth that has allowed it to happen. And honestly, it just fills me with so much gratitude and so much joy to keep writing to keep those librarians and booksellers and parents and readers and everyone proud and to keep like giving them content new content for them to enjoy hopefully enjoy
1: that's really interesting so i didn't realize that a book could hit the bestseller list a year after it's been published yeah
0: so it hardly ever happens but because it timed with the release of the paperback so when the paperback comes out it's kind of almost a a separate track so usually you're right. The New York Times bestseller list is for hardcovers. And so hardcovers are usually at the beginning of a book's journey. And mm-hmm. then when it gets yeah, turned into a paperback, then it has another chance, I guess. But yeah, it, like I said, it was just not oh, Okay, not so really, it was when it
1: was a paperback. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, yeah. any time is amazing. That's really amazing. What advice would you have for someone else to write their first book?
0: <laughs> oh, I would say just write. Because I think so much of the fear is about getting it on paper because the whole process of writing is rewriting. I remember the first manuscript I wrote and I was so proud when I got to the end because I was like, I've done it. The process is complete and it was hard, but I made it. And I didn't realize it was just the beginning of the journey because you have to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. You have to learn so much about not being precious with your words. And that's such a huge lesson to learn when you've just started writing and the process of drafting is so painful. You don't want to lose a single one of those words. But I've learned that, yeah, you need you need critique partners. Like you need people that can give you an objective view on your work. And obviously very important to remember that not everyone's feedback is feedback you should apply. Definitely not, because everybody's opinion is so subjective. But if you have a group of people all saying a very similar thing about your work, then you need to listen. You know, they're they're saying something, they're spotting something that you're missing. And then you have to amend, and you have to rewrite, and then you have to rewrite. I think that is the hardest part, taking on constructive criticism and knowing when to apply and when not to apply. The Last Fallen Star, I'm pretty sure went through about 14 rewrites before it became the version Came today oh wow yes and some authors do a lot less and some authors do a lot more mm-hmm. so everyone's different but I think the biggest piece of feedback I would say is just to get writing courses and you know external help are really helpful especially at the beginning and then later at the revision stage just to make sure that you've got the structure of story sussed and you're you know there's it's almost like Giving you a checklist of things to make sure you've covered, but no, and and like I said, I'm preparing a course right now. But none of that is prescriptive. You know, books can be whatever they want to be, but they're just helpful tools. And then the other thing is to read lots, not just in your age category and your genre, but widely, because sometimes ideas come from the bizarrest of places. And watch stuff too, because I think. TV, movies, they are also a form of storytelling. And so many of my ideas have sparked from there as well. So this whole idea of filling your creative well with lots of ingredients so that you have something to work with as outputs when you get down to the you know, process of writing. And then once you do write, making sure that you get lots of feedback and learn to apply that where relevant. But I think the most important thing is just to start.
1: Great. Where can people learn more about you? I'm always available
0: on my website, graciekim.com. I try very hard to respond to all emails, even if it takes me quite a while to respond. So I'm always available there. And I do have some social media presence on Twitter, Gracie Kim, and on Instagram, Gracie Kim Writes. I recently tried to create a TikTok account and I had so much fun, but I had so much fun that I was not doing any writing. So I've, I've <laughs> actually come off TikTok for a while because uh-huh. it is awesome a whole other universe on TikTok. So I'm taking a break from there.
1: Anything else that you would like to share with my audience that I haven't asked you or we haven't covered in this interview?
0: I would just like to say that regardless of what area of work that your listeners are in, whether it's creative or whether it's not, and, you know, considering the the difficult times that we've had in the last few years, and we'll probably continue to have in the next who knows how long, is just to remember what I said at the beginning about the power being with us to affect change in our own lives and our own circles, I guess, or our own circumstances. I know it's so, the doomsday scrolling of news is just so depressing. It really is. And I don't think there's so much we can do to change the big picture because that's like a societal thing. But, you know, as a writer, especially, you know, for children's books, I'm in the business of magic. And I truly believe we all have magic inside us. And I think true magic lies in our daily actions, you know, and how we decide to perceive what is around us and how to react to what is happening around us. And I think if we can just use that bit of magic inside us to have compassion and to be calm and to really just care for ourselves and for our fellow people, then, you know, eventually maybe our world can be a slightly brighter place than it has been. But I guess it's just a reminder. I'd love to tell people that, you know, let's just look inwards a little bit and just focus on the good things for now,
1: you know? Yeah. Thank you. Very well put. I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be interviewed for Talking Taiwan. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with New York Times bestselling author Gracie Kim. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by Natoa, The North America Taiwanese Women's Association, Natoa was founded in 1988 to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity, to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality, to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATWA, visit their website www.natwa.com Now it's time for you to show us some love. We just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin.
0: Talking Taiwan is brought to you by forumosa.com.